Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning and welcome from cloudy Northern California. Cold, cloudy Northern California. We're not used to this cold weather. Uh, We're so spoiled here in California, you know. So I'm so delighted this morning to introduce you to my friend, Reggie Montgomery. Reginald Montgomery, but we all call him Reggie. Welcome, Reggie. Hello. Hello. Can you hear okay? Good morning from sunny Florida. Yeah, yeah, don't rub it in. (laughs) Yeah, you're call I know you're calling from Florida. Thank you for joining the show, Reggie. We have a you have such an interesting topic. You and I have talked about this on the phone and uh but before we get into that, I would like people to know who you are because there are a lot of people that may be listening that don't know Reggie Montgomery. So just tell us a little bit about I know you were former law enforcement like a hundred years ago. And then you became a private investigator. Almost 100 years ago. <laughs> Actually, I joined the uh, joined a local police department in New Jersey in 1971. And okay. in 77, I was injured on duty and received a uh, injured on duty pension. Uh, from that point, I contacted the state of New Jersey vocational rehabilitation, and I convinced them that they should send me to polygraph school, which they did. Hmm. Send me to polygraph school in Philadelphia, uh, which I went to, and they paid for my schooling, uh, my um, polygraph machine, and basically put me into business. And uh, I did my internship while I was there and became a certified polygraphist in October of 1979. Well, that was, that's almost 100 years. <laughs> almost. And since then, so. <laughs> and actually I was doing a lot of polygraph business along with having my own detective agency since 1979 until approximately 1988 when the federal government decided to pass the Polygraph Protection Act of 1988, which mm. basically rendered the commercial polygraph business Defunct. <laughs> it's much true. more difficult to use polygraph to do the investigations. Yeah. That same thing happened to my husband. That's mm-hmm. absolutely true. So what happened at that point was I decided I had to pivot and uh, started taking tests, certification tests, one of which I know I gave you, certified legal investigator. Mm-hmm. That was that was my second testing procedure after a certified protection professional from American Society of Industrial Security. And since then, I've gotten a whole bunch of certifications, probably 14, I think. Only six or seven or eight of which I bothered to use because nobody else remembers them. Right. Um, I became an adjunct professor at Jersey City State University in Jersey City, New Jersey in security. Um, authored a couple of books, Corporate Investigations, uh, and then Corporate Investigations 2, 
corporate investigations one sold out and I can't I have I'm looking at the only copy left in existence, I think, across from my desk. There are some of edition two available, however. Uh, but not many of those either. And um I've written a number of art bunch of articles um for different magazines, PI magazine been involved in uh, other books where I've contributed chapters. Um, and I have a couple of those books, and, by the way. I do. I have a couple. Yeah. So um, you, I've been around a long time and done a lot of things. And basically, you have. You I have, have you. concentrated most on uh, corporate investigations with the uh, I like to do criminal defense. It's just something I like to do because I find it to be very easy to, because uh, usually the police and their prosecutions are lazier than we are and uh, <laughs> make it easy for criminal defense investigations when they screw up um, and they don't do things properly. Usually it's chain of evidence they have problems with or things and of that, that nature, is- which are easy to work. Uh, pick apart, as you know. And that is a very uh, important but, area, for sure. But the corporate investigations are interesting because there's so many different things we do in those, in those investigations, and that's why I was able to write those two books, 32-plus um, chapters. I didn't really write them. I compiled them. I had experts in each one of these different fields contribute um, chapters for the book on their specialty. And that's basically what I did for these major corporations. I had many Fortune 100 corporations when I was in New Jersey. Uh, Not so much now in Florida. There's not many corporations out there. But we would put together teams of investigators to uh, take care of whatever came up for these corporations. And they raised everything from murder cases to, uh, you know, misconduct, um, COVID misconduct. So, I mean, there was, um, and I've written and done many presentations. I've probably done over 60 presentations, um, uh, written 20 plus articles and with different, uh, magazines and, um, like the legal investigator to get put four or five in there. I had, uh, let's see, last issue I was in PI Magazine, and the next issue, of, I have an article in PI Magazine. Last issue was about ethics. No, I'm sorry. Last issue was about um, PI liability. And the next issue is going to be how to become an expert witness, which I wound up becoming along the way. Yeah. So, Reggie, today, so, can you hear me okay? Yes. Okay. Today we want to talk about one of your specialties, which is called product diversion. Could you tell? Could you describe yeah. what product product diversion is for us? Right, product diversion is an interesting subject because it's really a contractual dispute that can become uh, criminal. And fraud, if depending on how 
it shakes out. And the definition of product diversion is products sold by the manufacturer that are distributed into distributed into markets other than originally intended by contract. So um, give us an example. Give us an example, Reggie. For example, um, Listerine was a good example. The company, the company approaches Listerine to buy their sample size bottles, okay. saying that they're going to distribute them to dentist offices, which is done quite a bit. It's done not only for mouthwash, but toothpaste, toothbrushes, etc. And because they're going to be distributed to dentist offices, they receive a very deep discount, um, sometimes as much as 70%, because the company sees this as a promotional event for them to promote their products and to get people hooked on Listerine or Colgate or whatever toothbrush they're pushing that day. And what happens is those products wind up in bodegas or Walmart or someplace they are not intended to be sold for retail pricing. So the discounts between what the wholesaler would buy them for from the company and what the retailer sells them for is much more dramatic than it would be on a normal basis. And what kind of markets are these distributed to? Um, I, for example, um, Walmart is a good one. Uh, bodegas in any one of our major cities or any one of these small towns. These products could be sold there at uh, commercial pricing, sometimes a little bit less than normal retail because they're paying much less than normal wholesale. And they're making bigger profits. So uh, you get these lead, lost leaders, they call them, in these retail stores, where they bring you in to buy a product much cheaper than you would normally buy it because they got a really good deal on purchasing them wholesale. Those really good deals may be a fraud because they're not being distributed in the uh, areas and in the places that they were supposed to be by contract. Okay, so but they're but they're legitimate products. These and are it, legitimate products. That's correct. Yeah, and, so, it's, and, and sometimes it's, people sometimes like people. Sometimes like people think that these are counterfeit products, and they are not. Counterfeit products okay. is a whole different deal. So does the company... Is... Hmm. Let me see. Let me... Ha how do I phrase this? Does the... Listerine... In your example of Listerine, does Listerine, the company... No, this is happening, or has this been being diverted by some in rogue employee? Well, that's a good question. Sometimes they do know. In this case of Listerine, there was a rogue sales employee that, you know, they say they didn't know for sure that it sounded right, that this 
you know, seemed like a legit, legitimate um, dental supply company. And on the face of it, it usually does. But when a small dental supply company, and these salesmen can check what this annual sales are, with an annual sales, let's say, of $300,000, buys $500,000 worth of Listerine at the lower wholesale prices, they pretty much can figure out that this is a diversion. Now, one of the, the situations in this case, in this case in particular, was there are some major wholesalers in the country. Uh, and I'm not going to say with them, let's say McKissin or uh, Quality King in the East Coast. They will actually finance these people to do this. And if there's no, if they're not caught, they make a tremendous amount of money. And they're financing the whole thing. So in actuality, they're in collusion with the fraud. Okay. So that now it becomes more than a contractual dispute. It can become fraud because if the company, in this particular case, I was hired by the company. At that point in time, it was uh, Warner Lambert owned Listerine. Then they were bought out by Pfizer. Uh, that division, and then Pfizer, that division of Pfizer was bought out by Johnson & Johnson. So, and what happens is, these, um, these companies have, because of a lot of the work that I did, I was taught how to do these type of investigations by a retired FBI agent named David Duke, who's since passed. And we worked out how to do these things and they, how to audit them and come up with a new paragraph for these contracts called an end-use agreement. And in this end-use agreement, these companies would agree that, number one, as the company, we had the right to audit their distribution line. And number two, if they were caught violating the contract, and these products were distributed outside the contractual distribution line, they would lose not only their wholesale discount, but they would have to pay retail for the products. Hmm. Okay. This was very effective. And... Many companies adopted these end-use agreements to try to control these diversion schemes because they were making literally billions of dollars doing these things, as you can imagine. The case that you're describing, this was an employee of the company that was doing this. This was the salesperson. So okay. what happens is at the end of the month, and these salespeople are usually selling over the phone to no distributors they know. Um, they get they get calls all the time from distributors they don't know, and they're supposed to do uh, some due diligence on these companies to see if they're, they're legit, and do that before they enter into contracts. So some of these companies, in this particular case, 
this uh, sales salesman was behind in his monthly sales. So he figured it was worthwhile for him to take a chance in this guy and make his month. And selling, you know, three million, three quarters of a million dollars worth of Listerine to one wholesaler definitely made his month. Uh, but it stood out to the security department, which from time to time would check these numbers. So who's um, making now? It, it, who's, uh, Reggie, who's making the income? Where does the where does the money go? The does money the the money goes to the diverter, which should be that wholesaler in the middle. Now, if that diverter is backed by a big, bigger wholesaler, then they would split that profit. Okay. And still both make a lot, a lot of money. Okay. So how does, in this case, how did the salesperson get away with it? Well, in this case... They didn't. Uh, the security well, they department. Did for a while. <laughs> they did for a while. Uh, not, not very long in this case. Okay. The security department of Warner Lambert took note of this and contracted me to go out and audit the distribution. So I contacted the, the company, the dental supply company, and said, I want to come and audit your distribution. And I was met with a lot of trepidation on the end of that phone line. This particular guy happened to be in Maryland. And he operated out of his house. Very nice house, by the way, with a three-car garage that was filled from floor to ceiling with three-ounce bottles of Listerine. Oh, wow. And it was pretty easy to see <laughs> that he hadn't distributed most of this stuff. So this particular guy thought he was going to be slick and gave me documents that showed that he distributed, uh, I'd say it was probably $200,000 worth of Listerine three-ounce bottles to a State Hospital in California to be distributed to all their dentistry uh, and people that were in the hospital. So in the flavor of it, they were actually distributing this to for a promotion. Not by the letter of the contract, but they were doing it. So I was tasked to go out to California and to find out if they actually received this stuff. So I actually went out to California and audited the records of the receiving department of this big hospital. They had never received any of this stuff. But I went out there false bills of lading in hand that this guy had given me amount. So now, this has now turned criminal. A false bill of lading is a criminal act. It's in the State Commerce Commission. And okay, Reggie, 
I have some, I have some questions about this, but I'm being notified. We need to take a quick break. So can you hang on to that? And we'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. My guest today is Reggie Montgomery, investigator from Florida, and we're talking about product diversion and he was just telling us uh, about a case he had with the company with the Listerine company uh, where they uh, diverted their uh, small bottles and I'll let let him tell you more about that so uh, so you you audited the hospital and then where did that take you? We audited the distribution that this wholesaler from Maryland it was a wholesaler for Dentist products, uh, fillings, okay. whatever, toothpaste. Uh, in this case, it was Listerine, three ounce bottles, which are um, obviously uh, 
sample size. And anyway, so we I went out to California, and this, this uh, place had never received one bottle or one box of this product. And I got a statement from him, and I asked him to look at the bill lady uh, that it was supposedly, you know, he had supposedly signed off on, he had not. It was then time to go back and talk to this wholesaler in Maryland and say, uh, where are we going here, buddy? Uh, this is now a criminal act you, you have. Now it's fraud. It's no longer a contractual dispute. Where did you get the money to finance this? You you made less money in sales last year than you spent in this listerine at one time. So he decided he would cooperate, and he gave me a statement telling me which huge national wholesaler approached him to do this. Now, wow. these wholesalers make billions of dollars a year in these diversion schemes. And I was told once by one of their attorneys that they set aside 10% of their diversion profits to settle cases like this, which in, in this case they did. They settled the case with, you know, general counsel of company for I don't know what the amount was, but whatever it was, it actually turned the security department in that case into a profit center because we were making profits that wouldn't have normally been made. Right. Even a regular wholesale price. Interesting. So what other ways um, can diversion happen? Well, there's a, a few different ones. One is dated products. Now, every company, uh, and it's usually, usually companies that have expiration dates on their product. It could be aspirin, cough syrup, anything that has an expiration date. And I mean any product. It could be chewing gum. Um, they have an expiration date on their product. The normal way of doing business for these companies is three months and that's the normal time, three months before the expiration date and it's oftentimes six months the salesperson will come into the retail store, retail outlet and take all the dated product or about to be dated product off the shelves and replace it with new product. That old product is supposed to be destroyed and there's supposed to be records of that destruction for the salesperson. Oftentimes okay. that doesn't happen. And the estated products wind up in flea markets, um, bodegas, these secondary retail stores for a little bit less than normal pricing. Like so people the dollars. Think they're getting a deal. This would be like and the dollar. The stuff is just store. about to become dated. Okay. So, and you're saying the company doesn't know this is happening? Well, what happens is 
Um, the way we find out about these things is there are people that go to flea markets and check out these products and see when the, what products they are and when the expiration dates are. And they'll report it to the manufacturers. Okay. And with that, oftentimes the manufacturers with the police, local police, will raid these places and then try to find out from the people there that are selling these products who they got it from, when they got it from, how much they paid. So that's how that is investigated. Well, okay, so that's flea markets. What about retail stores that are do it, that are buying these products? Retail stores do it also. I mean, flea markets do it, and also retail stores. These salesmen will go in to secondary stores, not the ones they pick the, the product out of. They'll go into the local bodega and, you know, and say, "Hey, you want some Listerine? You want some? Uh, you want some chewing gum, uh, cough drops? You name it." that have expiration dates on it, the expiration dates are still good. They're probably four to six months away. Sometimes it's only three months away. So they're not selling outdated product. They're selling product that is basically they've stolen off the shelf and supposed to have destroyed. So they've well, broken you know, their company policy and they're actually stealing from their, their own company. The article I read on this, Reggie, is that in hair care products... The practice is so commonplace that companies like Redken uh, have issued advisories to customers. And they're educating oh, their customers. Yeah. Absolutely. We've done, I've done cases for, uh, for mm-hmm. these companies with hair products. And it's done all the time. And what they do is the same thing. Their distributors say they're going to, you know, um, hair cutting shops. And they actually sell them to, you know, to retailers. And the retailers put them on the shelves for less money than the hair cutting shops do. So the hair cutting shops will turn them in. Say, hey, what's going on here? How can they sell this stuff for less than I do? How is that even possible? And there's there's also charity abuse. Well, the... Sales will be approached by a charity, so a so-called charity. It may even look like a charity when you do a search of five hundred one three C to be distributed to wherever St. Jude's Hospital, the Children's right. Hospital. I mean, it could be anything like that. Any kind of charity situation, um, food banks, things like that. Mm-hmm. And yeah. oftentimes they get this stuff with nothing, but it will wind up in those in those food banks. There was a, there was a common one for school uh, college kits. It usually occurs in May or June. These sales, and they they claim that they're going to go into college kits, and the college kit would could be, you know, Listerine shampoo. Um, toothpaste, toothbrushes, any kind of hair products, combs, whatever. Mm-hmm. And they put them into a, a college kit that are given right. away when the kid hits school. Well, some of them might go there, but a lot of them wind up back in the retailers. <laughs> and, 
And how, what percentage, or if you know, of things like this go overseas to third world countries? Uh, a lot. What usually happens, it goes the other way. Hmm. People are, are saying that they're, they're buying something to go to Africa. Okay, and, and so, because they want to make inroads into the markets in Africa, they will sell these things for 10 cents on a dollar just to make these inroads. And they write it off. The manufacturing company writes it off. Okay. So they're going to write off, and they think they're getting a promotion in Africa, and they never wind up leaving the country. And when they, oftentimes you go to, to um, audit their distribution, and they'll go to a, 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 a port like Newark or Miami or L.A., and what happens is they, there's a way they can turn around that um, bill of lading on that container that comes right back into the country to some sort of distributor. And everybody's making money on this. And and how often do you think the buyer is suspects it or is is an unsuspecting victim? Well, quite a bit actually. Unless you go into a, you know, I mean, I think people that go to flea markets realize what's going on because the expiration dates aren't a year away; they're three months away or six months away. So, I mean, there. A smart shopper, and that's why they go to uh, flea markets anyway, because they want to buy things for less money. Well, I would but, think flea so markets would. Be, yeah, I would think flea markets would be obvious, but not so much with, uh, you know, retail stores that like, you know, the the off price stores that people seem to shop at now. You know, most most retail stores they are not available uh, aware of it. I mean, I have a. It's kind of a funny story. I got a call because I'm a, I was and am the diversion expert in the country because I've done all these different kind of cases. I got a call from somebody in Walmart Security, and he wanted me to come teach his people in his security office all about diversion. And I just started laughing. I said, I, I think you probably, probably, should probably go talk to your boss before you send me any money. Because uh, this is not going to turn out well for you. And he goes, what are you talking about? He says, well, I want you to think about Walmart specials. You don't think any of this product is diverted? So the biggest retailers are the biggest diverted sometimes Many of the employees don't know about it, and even management might not know about it, but a lot of these products are diverted. They go through a couple of these wholesalers, and how are they going to know? So right, oftentimes this happens. I can see that. Promotional offers are a big way to divert products. Okay. So does the government... Do this as well? I mean, do they get involved in uh, buying these diverted products? More than likely, and they don't know about it. Right. Yeah, so right. Some of these things, are, for example, Coca-Cola, Pepsi-Cola, they have 
regional promotions. They'll have, and this is usually a fight between them. When you buy a Coca-Cola franchise, you buy the distribution rights, let's say, like here in Florida, West Palm Beach or in Atlanta. Uh, well, you don't want to do Atlanta because that's the headquarters of Coke. Um, whatever, Boston, Massachusetts, whatever town. You buy a distribution area where you can just manufacture and distribute Coca-Cola, Pepsi-Cola, Lays, Tastes, whatever it is. Oftentimes, people will distribute in areas they're not supposed to. So, they'll take, if they haven't sailed to the low in West Palm Beach, let's say, they'll sell a whole bunch of this stuff and distribute it in Miami. Now, Miami, <laughs> Miami people that are paying for that franchise, when they find out about this, they go crazy because they're paying to distribute solely in that area. So this happens, you know, quite a bit. And, uh, you know, there are fights between the companies. Now, the way, the way people find out about this is, you know, word of mouth. It's back to the salespeople and then to consumers. Um, if figures are low in sales, yet product is available, that's how it's going to happen. Now, irritated consumers will undercut prices because of undercut prices will call into the company. Um, stores not known to carry a product will stock, all of a sudden stock the product at low prices. This is another way it gets back to the manufacturer. Promotional sales don't always result in increased profits. They use right. profits you sure. decline, but they bring the people into the retailer. And that's the sole purpose of what they're trying to do. Well, one of the things that uh, on the information you sent me, Reggie, uh, you talked about handbags, for example, where they might cut... Uh, more products out of a piece of cloth or leather or whatever it is um, than they normally do. So is that cutting costs or is that diversion? That's actually theft. I, we had a case where, I don't know if you're familiar with the brand Etienne Anye. They make familiar handbags with, and shoes. What's the name again? Etienne Anye. No, I'm not they, familiar with that. Okay. They make uh, high-end handbags and shoes. And they were making all the handbags in the New York metropolitan area. What happened was I got a call from a vice president of the company, one of the manufacturing sites, saying uh, a product is showing up in upper Manhattan right across the George Washington Bridge for half of what we sell it for wholesale. Wow. He says, how is that happening? I said, I don't know. You want me to find out? He said, please. So I said, my girlfriend at the time, he walked in by one of his handbags. So she went into the first store. She saw it and bought it. Half of a retail price. 
at that point, when I got one, he says, I want you to send more people out to see how many you can buy up there. We had three small retailers and bought eight, nine of his bags. Brought them back to, to him as the, one of the manufacturing sites. He said, these are legitimate. These are our bags, period. They're not knockoffs. They were manufactured by us. Interesting. That you know that. He said, the hardware. We, okay. What we do and the way they manufacture was they distribute hides and the hardware to the individual manufacturing sites. I think in the metropolitan area, they were like five or six. And they could cut so many bags out of each um, hide. Well, they figured out how to cut more out instead of getting four bags out of a hide, they would get five or six. So now, the manufacturer itself, the company, has no idea that they are going to go. And they didn't. They had absolutely no idea this was happening. So in this case, I wound up putting undercover agents who could sew leather, which that was fun to find, uh, in these different manufacturing sites. And they, in this particular case, they were fairly attractive women in their early forties, and they got close to the to the um, mid management of these manufacturing sites, and found out that there was one box or two boxes going out to the distribution to where they're supposed to go. And there was another box or two going out to distribution where they had no idea it was on. So there was a concerted effort by the mid to upper management of these manufacturing sites to steal this product. And upper management had no idea. So by the time we got done, it was six weeks later, we had identified all the bad guys. Uh, we did a raid. Okay, let, let's take and, a break right now. Reggie, can, if you can hear me, let's okay. take a break right now. I want to I hear how, exactly how you did this. We'll be right back. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. 
Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Reggie Montgomery and I are talking about his specialty product diversion or investigating product diversion. I don't think he's doing it. I think he's investigating it. Uh, and I and we're talking about um, the handbags that were being diverted. And I want to hear how you caught the bad guys. Well, from the mid-management people that we absolutely caught, because um, we followed the trucks that they sent out by themselves. We knew where the, the, the manufactured products were supposed to go. So we followed the trucks that left there, and we followed some of them to where they were supposed to go and others to where they weren't supposed to go. Mm-hmm. And from that, we traced it back to the guys who loaded those trucks and the management that stuck the, the tags on those boxes that went to the wrong places. And, you know, so you can talk to me or you can talk to the cops normal normal routine I do uh, in the interview process they gave up the people that were in charge of them and it went right up to guess what the president of the company hmm. um, he was stealing from his own company so well. guess what he is no longer he was no longer president of the company and the board right. of directors determined that they were going to change their manufacturing mode in the way they did it. And from that point on, they started manufacturing these things in Korea. And they would only supply these Korean companies the amount of leather that they knew that they needed for these bags. And the amount of hardware. There were very distinct hardware, buckles and things like that. Mm-hmm. To those uh, companies that, you know, would now be responsible for supplying exactly the amount of bags that that leather and those that hardware would uh, be for. 
So, I mean, can they get ripped off again? Sure. So was anybody... They They were losing 40% of what they were making. Was anybody prosecuted or was this all handled civilly? Uh, No. (laughs) No. Most cases I do do not get prosecuted. um, Right. Because they don't want the bad press. Right. Um, I mean, certainly this took place... 20 plus years ago. Um, so at this point, I don't think Etienne Anier would suffer from this because I'm sure they're off doing other things and making other profits. But they don't want, they don't want to be in the press. They don't want the, they don't want the cops showing up there. They don't want, because the yeah. cops show up, the press shows up. Right. Um, you know, and the prices of their stock goes down. So they don't want to hear that. In most, most cases, the most corporate cases I do, are not prosecuted unless it's a product tampering case, which I did many of those. And right. even then, they don't want to highlight it. You know, they don't want to highlight the porn sure. books and the cracker jack prices. Well, they don't want people to know they, they, they don't to- have control of their business. <laughs> but, so, they, don't, yeah, they don't want the dirty laundry. Yeah. You know, we've only got a few minutes left, Reggie. Can you, do you have some pointers if, we have businesses listening to the show, pointers for them on how to control their products. Well, the end use agreements are really, really important. If you okay. have a good end use agreement and with an audit capability and your salespeople are instructed that when somebody's looking for a discount for whatever, charity, distribution abroad, whatever it may be, um, they are forewarned and sign a separate end-use agreement so they know what they're going to be in for if, in fact, they want to distribute these products outside the contracted distribution chain. That has worked very well for many companies and to the salespeople involved. Because the salespeople had to know these things were going on. Um, or else they wouldn't have been doing their job. So. Right. So now that's uh, pretty much, not eliminated, but dramatically cut down uh, the amount that this is happening. You're still going to get it under Paul Mitchell type stuff. And, you know, you're still going to get that because it's high-end merchandise. Right. You know, when we did this stuff for everybody, you know, Ray-Ban, you know, sunglasses, it was very, you get a lot of counterfeits for sunglasses. But mm. there, was, there was Ray-Bans that were diverted, that, you know, if one guy wasn't selling enough, he'd sell them cheap. Next guy would make the profits, and after that, after that. That's how that works. So. Right. So, essentially, the, this kind of investigation involves following a paper trail, uh, which you're doing from both ends. You're, you're possibly doing surveillance to see what's going out of the warehouse, looking at the bill of lading, the bill of sale, where it gets delivered to, all of those kind of things. It's a full investigation. That sounds like oh, yeah. it doesn't happen overnight. No, it doesn't happen overnight. No, it can happen quickly. Uh, I can audit 
example, we had a company that was doing, they were doing, um, uh, let's see. When you go on a, a cruise, it was a cruise. They were saying they were distributing these packages in cruise lines. And they were buying okay. all these different products and putting them in a package and distributing them when somebody went on the cruise. Well, except you know, we started doing audits and they were buying enough for every cruise ship that was going to sail for the next 10 years. You know, <laughs> okay. And I went out to, in fact, it was in the San Francisco area. I went out to audit there and I went into their warehouse and I couldn't believe what I was saying. I mean, it wasn't going on. They had enough supply every cruise ship that's going to ever take off from any port ever. Um, so what were they doing? It was with just them? another way of where were they going diversion. instead? Where Sorry. where were they going? They were going to retail stores. Okay, all right. Hmm. Going into retail stores, and you know, they when I went to audit them, they offered me. Let's see, you like my Corvette over there? How would you like to have one of those? <laughs> or uh, my secretary's free tonight. And I'm going, really? <laughs> really? Okay. So they wound, up, they wound up settling early with the company that I was representing. But I was only representing one of the companies that they were doing this with. I mean, there were another 15 or 20 different manufacturers that were represented in that warehouse. And... Yeah, they wanted to buy me off that too. Don't contact any of these companies. So I work for one company, you know, but I work for that company, not for you. <laughs> yeah, it was like amazing. They would make right. tremendous amount of money doing these diversion schemes. And do you, and you don't notify the other companies? No, not my job. Yeah. What not about the what about who I, you're working? With? Listen, do they? I, I notify the company that I'm working for. What I say. If they want to call those companies, that's uh, up to them. Yeah. Okay. But I work. Right. For, I work for who I work for. I don't work for other companies. That's not. I don't find that yeah, ethically sound to do that. Okay. Fair enough. Other people that do that, it's just not. I report to my client what I investigate for my client. What they intend to do, what they want to do, it's up to them because they don't know for sure. And I don't know for sure that the products in these in this That's warehouse true. were diverted. I'm making an assumption. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I'm not going to report it to somebody I don't know for sure. Would you like to give your contact information if somebody wants to contact you either with uh, a kind of a situation that we've been describing here or advice on how to pursue it? Would you like to provide that information? Sure. Reach me at my phone number is one eight hundred three two seven seven three nine four. Or you can send me an email at Reggie R E G G I E at R J M A F L P I dot com. Again, that's Reggie okay. at R J M A F-L-P-I dot com. And would you also repeat the phone number, Reggie? It's 1-800-327-7394. I'd be more than happy to 
answer anybody's questions or if you need any help with this case. Certainly, I've done many of them and with different twists. And each case is different. There's never two well, cases I- the same. I appreciate you being on the show today, Reggie. This has been really interesting in an area that I knew nothing about. And I suspect there's folks out there that didn't know anything about it either. So thank you so much for being on the show. And for all of the rest of you, it's P.I. Steve Classified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific time here on the Voice America Variety Channel.